The text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of God. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that it proclaims, and I pray that your spirit would be active here in our presence, in our midst this morning, uh, applying that gospel to us. I pray that we'd understand it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So before turning to the text, I want to thank the elders of King's Cross for the kind invitation to address you. It's always wonderful coming back to see what the Lord is doing here. I think um, most of you know, if not all of you know, that something remarkable is happening uh, in Moscow. You don't need to be told that. Uh, the church is growing and expanding and in many senses exploding. But what you might need to be told or reminded of is that uh, the existence of and the thriving of King's Cross is an important component uh, to that growth. It is, uh, God is very much present with us and it's wonderful to see how God's grace overflows. And it's a privilege to be uh, with you this morning as part of that overflow. It's wonderful. So as we mark and celebrate the great work of the Spirit that we call the Protestant Reformation, we need to be mindful of remembering two things. The first is that we must recall the gospel of liberating grace, the gospel that is perennial good news, always good news. The gospel is never going to go out of date. The gospel is always going to be relevant as long as there are sinners. And as long as human history exists, there will be sinners. So the gospel is perennial good news. It's constant good news, always good news. Sinners always need to be able to hear the message of no condemnation. Secondly, we need to take care that we do not turn that glorious doctrine into a museum piece. In other words, if you hear something long enough or uh, if it's been repeated in your presence enough, sola deo gloria or sola fide or justification by faith alone, whatever the phrase is, whatever the catchphrase of the Reformation is, it is easy to have that phrase wear a groove in your, in your soul and you think you understand it because you've heard it so often. And perhaps you once understood it or perhaps you once understood it partially, but you've gotten accustomed to it. You've gotten used to it. But the gospel is a message of forgiveness for sin, and it is consequently a message for, of truth that answers every lie, and especially it addresses the lies that are current in our day. And so we have to remember and focus on the central message of the Reformation, which, as it turns out, is the central message of Scripture. God saves sinners. That's, that's how the that's how the message of redemption begins in the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, God promises a Messiah. God saves sinners. And the culmination of all things is the bride coming down out of heaven, like a, uh, the church coming down out of heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband. And we see that it is, in fact, the truth that God saves sinners. So how do we apply this text to that? Given the sweep of Paul's argument in Romans up to this point, 
we can see that those who have looked to Christ Jesus in faith are therefore in Christ Jesus by faith. That's the two-step process. You look you looked to Christ Jesus, and that means you're in Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. If they're in Christ Jesus, there is therefore no condemnation for them. So that's the process. You look to Christ Jesus, you're in Christ Jesus, and for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Walking by the Spirit, they find themselves liberated from the law of sin and death. That's the second verse. Walking by the Spirit, which they've been, been enabled to do because they are in Christ Jesus, and no, now there's no condemnation over them, they are set free, they are liberated to walk in accordance with the Spirit. And so they're, not, they're liberated from the law of sin and death. Verse 2, the law could not bring no condemnation. All the law could do is bring condemnation. We are unholy, we are unrighteous, we are sinful, and so the law is holy, righteous, and good. So whenever the law comes into contact with sinners who are unholy, unrighteous, not good, nothing, nothing can result except condemnation. So the law could, could not bring no condemnation. And that was because of the weakness of our flesh, not because of the weakness of the law. That was not a problem with the law. The problem was in us. So because of the weakness of our flesh, the law could only bring condemnation. Verse 3. Now here's the glorious thing. What the law could not do, God did by sending his incarnate son who was then condemned in the flesh. Verse 3. What the law could not do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to be sacrificed, in order to be crucified. And in that crucifixion, he was condemned. And so you need to see the connection between the no condemnation of verse 1 and the condemnation of verse 3. So the condemnation of verse 2 is just condemnation that brings condemnation. If the law comes to a sinner, condemnation brings condemnation. The law brings condemnation. You bring more law, you bring more condemnation. But if you look to Christ Jesus, where there's no condemnation, how, what, how does that work? Well, Jesus Christ was condemned on the cross. And that is a condemnation, unlike the condemnation of the law, that is a condemnation that brings no condemnation. There's no condemnation for us in Christ, because in Christ, the condemnation is already passed and accomplished. Also verse 3. And this is important to note. It's not as though God is benevolently looking down on the cosmos, and he says, I've decided there, that since I'm being nice, since I'm gracious, there's going to be no condemnation anywhere at any time. That's not the nature of the no condemnation. The no condemnation in verse 1 is the, is the no condemnation that results from the thunderstorm having already passed. The thunderstorm has already occurred. It occurred 2,000 years ago. There's no condemnation now because the condemnation has already been poured out on Christ on the cross. So the condemnation of verse 3 is the reason there's no condemnation for us in verse 1. So the condemnation is in the rearview mirror. The condemnation is over. It's accomplished. It's completed. It's done. And this means that we can walk in righteousness without fear in the Spirit. This is why we can walk without condemnation, without the Damoclean sword hanging over our head where at any moment judgment can fall. We are liberated from having to worry about anything like that. And that is the message that is the message that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. So this message that I've just outlined in Romans 8, 
1 through 4, uh, is the message that Paul obviously wrote 2,000 years ago, but it got encrusted with a bunch of human traditions over the years, and it was recovered, unearthed, much like Josiah discovering the book of Deuteronomy when they were clean, cleaning out the temple. The, the temple had filled up with debris. They decided to renovate it and clean it up, and they found God's word in the midst of the temple. It was that way. The Protestant Reformation cleared away a bunch of humanistic debris, and they found the gospel. They didn't invent the gospel, but they found a gospel that had been buried, a bunch of, uh, buried under a bunch of clutter and had been under clutter for centuries. So what is it? What, what did this mean five centuries ago? What did this mean five centuries ago? The gospel really is good news. It, mean, it means release for the captives. It means release for the captives, Luke 4.18. It means life from the dead, Ephesians 2.1. It means sight for the blind, that's Luke 4.18. It means the sleeper awakes, Ephesians 5.14. It means a binding up of the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61.1. It means the downtrodden are set free, Luke 4.18. And it means the dungeon doors swing open, Romans 6.14, and the dungeon doors swing open to a spring day. And you walk out. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, th what this good news does, what it accomplishes, what it declares, and what it brings about is release, liberation, forgiveness. That's what it means. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, English Literature in the 16th Century, which is his magnum opus on, on his, in his academic career. The first two chapters are simply gold when it comes to a description of what it was like to, to go through the Protestant Reformation, particularly in England. And this is his description of that. This is Lewis's description of what it was like to be a Protestant in the first heady days of the Reformation. All the initiative has been on God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace. And all will continue to be free, unbounded grace. His own puny and ridiculous efforts would be as helpless to retain the joy as they would have been to achieve it in the first place. Fortunately, they need not. Bliss is not for sale. Isn't that wonderful? Bliss is not for sale. It cannot be, it cannot be earned. Bliss is not for sale, cannot be earned. Works have no merit, though, of course, faith, inevitably, even unconsciously, flows out into works of love at once. He is not saved because he does works of love. He does works of love because he is saved. It is faith alone that has saved him, faith bestowed by sheer gift. And this is the cash payout line. From this buoyant humility, this farewell to the self with all its good resolutions, anxiety, scruples, motive scratchings, all the Protestant doctrines originally sprang. Let me read that again. From this buoyant humility, this farewell to the self, with all its good resolutions, anxiety, scruples, and motive scratchings, all the Protestant doctrines originally sprang. Notice it says, it doesn't say from this, uh, from this lifestyle of orgy attendance, this... Uh, this life of Matthews, this life of rampant pornography. What, what, were the, what were the early Protestants liberated from? They were liberated from religious anxiety. 
They were liberated from the condemnation of the law. Now, of course, they're sinners. Of course, there was all sorts of sin that they needed to be forgiven from. But the natural human tendency is to try to earn, get, to earn your way back into God's good graces by, uh, by doing something. I, just, I need to contribute something. And then we cook up rituals, and we cook up sacraments, and we cook up things to do. And we say, yeah, God, is, God has promised us eternal bliss in heaven, and surely I can contribute something toward can't I contribute something? And so we rummage in our pockets and we come up with 13 cents. That's not the, that's not the bad part. The bad part is we offer the 13 cents to him as though it might contribute somehow to this eternity of bliss with God forever. And it's 13 cents and pocket lint. What are we thinking? What are we doing? The early Protestants knew that you're, you are saved by grace plus no works or not at all. It's, it's simply that, that's the bottom line. You are saved independent of your good works. You're saved, indep- it has nothing to do with you. As he began, all the initiative has been on God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace. Free grace, free grace, free grace. And we immediate, immediately, our little inner moral monitor kicks in. And we say, but if you tell people that they're just freely forgiven... If you just say it's all done, Christ has forgiven everything, aren't they going to say, well, then, let's sin that grace may abound? Romans 6. That's what Paul, Paul had to answer that objection in the first century when he, because he was teaching the same thing. Our inner moral monitor says, no, if you want to keep people walking in a straight line, you, ha- you have to keep something hanging over them. There's got to be something hanging over their head. If you, you straighten up and fly right, if you don't straighten up and fly right, then it's hell for you or damnation for you. You've got to threaten them. It's got to be, there's got to be a little bit of stick involved, not all this Protestant carrot stuff. <coughs> now, but the Bible says, the Bible teaches there's no condemnation for those who've looked to Christ Jesus, who are in Christ Jesus. It's simply true. This is a liberating gospel. Not only is it a liberating gospel, but it is that which enables us to walk in the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What is it that liberates us from sin? The thing that liberates us from the power of sin is forgiveness of sin, and nothing else does it. The thing that liberates you from the power of sin is forgiveness of sin, and nothing else. Now, This gospel means the same thing today. What it meant 500 years ago, what it meant 2,000 years ago, it means the same thing now. Now, the errors against which our Reformation fathers protested were ancient errors. Now, when when it comes around, when Reformation Day comes around, and we're all feeling very Protestant-y, and Martin Luther's a great guy, and you hear more Martin Luther quotes than you usually do, and, you know, it's all a good thing. It's hard to to do that without it looking to some outsiders like we've all decided to to pick on Roman Catholics. Well, this is not a matter of picking on Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholic error was not a distinctive Roman Catholic error. The Roman Catholic error was a distinctively human error. And they were just being ordinary people doing what ordinary people always do. Ordinary people always want to get in with God. They want to pay for it somehow or pay for part of it. They don't want God to simply do all of it. So the merit-mongering of Rome was the great-granddaughter of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who were also very, very human. 
The Pharisees were not uniquely evil. The Pharisees were just being human, wanting to please God by their effort. And the Roman Catholics were the same way. And so, for those who were steeped in Scripture, it was a familiar foe. All of it was a deadly mixture of truth, hypocrisy, and poisonous lies. But everybody was on familiar territory. Once you translated the Bible into the common tongue and people started reading their Bibles, they could recognize what they were up against in the pages of Scripture. They could see the collision between Jesus and the Pharisees, between Jesus and the uptight, religiously scrupulous people, was very much like the collisions between the Reformers and the monks, the Reformers and the Roman Church. It was all familiar territory. And that is a constant, even in our day, that's a constant 2,000 years ago, 500 years ago, and it's an element, obviously, today. Sin is still sin. Guilt is still guilt. The cross is still the cross. And gospel preaching still brings liberation to sinners one at a time. That is all still the case. But it is also the case that we, in our day, are in new territory. There is some new territory. And this means that we have to apply the the ancient gospel, the constant gospel, to a new circumstance. The rebellion against God among our ruling elites is far advanced, and so we must learn to apply the doctrines of free grace in the ways that the sons of Issachar would, 1 Chronicles 12.32. This gospel of free grace means no less than it did five centuries ago, but our opportunities to apply and extend the goodness of God are much greater than before, and what do I mean? In the, the, the people that the Reformers were up against believed in the Trinity. They believed that God created the world. They, they weren't Darwinists. They believed that, that we could not be saved apart from his intervention and grace. They believed the Bible. They believed, that, they believed the parables. They, you know, they, they, they were committed to all the, uh, many of the things that the Reformers were committed to on paper. But they, they jiggered with it a bit, and that, that, that uh, admixture of error was a significant error, and, and hence the Protestant Reformation. We are up against people who want to deny the whole thing top to bottom. There is no God. There is no creation. There is, you, are, you don't bear the image of God. You are nothing but meat, bones, and protoplasm. Everything in the cosmos, anything in the cosmos can turn into anything else in the cosmos. You think about it, the Big Bang, you know, uh, hydrogen is this uh, color, colorless, odorless gas that, given enough time, can turn into anything. There's this big explosion, and after this big explosion, millennia later, millions of years later, billions of years later, you have little yellow canaries and baleen whales and princes die and all these different manifestations of matter. And it's all purposeless. It makes, there's no rhyme or reason. It's just all chaos. It means nothing. Imagine there's no heaven above you, right? no, hell be- no hell below you. It's only sky. We're, all we are is meaningless bits of matter. And so consequently, we can do anything we want, and they can do anything to you that they want. But that's what we're up against. So in the Protestant Reformation, they were up against people who had bent the gospel to, uh, 20 degrees to the left, We are up against people who deny everything about it. They deny God. They deny the Trinity. They deny the Incarnation. They deny that you bear the image of God. They deny the whole shooting match. And the gospel that we preach answers that lie 
as, as much and as effectively as it answered the lie that it had to address in the Protestant Reformation. So what do I mean? How do we apply it uniquely? Now, you have noticed, I've no doubt, and you've, if you've not noticed it, you've been around people who have commented on it. We are up against the progressive Marxist critical theory left, and we are tempted often to say, if it weren't for double standards, they'd have no standards at all. And that's very true. But it's not just simply double standards. You have to understand that we are talking about competing religions, and every religion in this world has to have a doctrine of justification. And that doctrine of justification has to proclaim over the faithful something like no condemnation. That's, that's what it has to do. In order to answer the Christian faith, we preach no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They have to answer that somehow. They have to come up with their own version of that somehow, which they have done. Why did so many, for example, in just the last few weeks, why did so many refuse to condemn the recent atrocities committed by Hamas? You would think that that would be an easy thing to do, right? Well, that was awful. Well, why can't you condemn it? Why wouldn't they condemn it? Because they have a doctrine of justification. And, the just, and the, if someone is in a justified category, they, what, what must they say over that category? No condemnation. No condemnation. To the left, no condemnation. That's what they're doing. They were trying to say no condemnation regardless of what the terrorists may have done. This is a 10-cent knockoff of the Christian gospel, but they were at least attempting it. This is the source of what we see as the double standards of the left. They say that they can do certain things and we cannot because they are justified and we are not justified. It is their version of no condemnation. But to be fair, we do the same thing, right? And there's a difference, but I'll get to the difference in a minute. Well, how do we do the same thing? Well, what, what sorts of crimes did put the thief on the cross, the one that repented? Put, what, what put him there? Well, we don't know. We know that he was a thief, but it was probably more than that because in the exchange between the two thieves, what we, we deserve to be here, the repentant thief said, what they had done, they, they were on the cross deservedly. We deserve, this man has not done anything wrong, but we deserve to be where we are. Do we believe that that, that awful person repented and told, asked Jesus for mercy the last minutes of his life, and God just sort of forgave him for everything? Today you'll be with me in paradise, Jesus said. You mean that dirtbag could have no condemnation pronounced over him? Yes. Yes. That's what we're saying. No condemnation. But wait, but isn't he guilty? Yes, he's guilty. Hasn't he done awful things? Yes, he's done awful things. Well, how is it possible then for a holy God to say no condemnation? Well, that's, I'm going to get to that in a minute, because there is a difference between the world's system of justification and what we're preaching. But the, the thing that doesn't make them distinct is this sentence of no condemnation. They say no condemnation, and we say no condemnation. The potency of the Christian gospel of no condemnation is anchored in three basic truths. One of them it's a word from outside human history. The sentence, no condemnation, the proclamation, no condemnation, comes to us from outside human history. Our salvation has a transcendental 
foundation. The lamb was slain, we're told in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Before, outside the world. Your salvation is anchored outside the world. That means the world can't reach it. The world can't touch it. The world can't untie it. The world can't erase it. Our salvation is grounded in a transcendental election. That's the first thing. The second thing, this word of no condemnation was purchased for us through the precious blood of Christ, the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, also Hebrews 13. This salvation was purchased for us, and we own it free and clear. Our salvation was not loaned to us. You didn't borrow it. You own it free and clear. It's yours, and it's yours forever. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that you're in the Father's hand, and nothing can, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And you, you're in his fist, and nothing means that nothing from outside can remove you from his hand, and nothing from inside his hand can remove. You can't say, please open up, I want to get off. He's going to say, too bad. <laughs> too bad. You can't. I have you. The issue is not whether a Christian can lose his salvation. That's not the issue. The issue is, can Christ lose a Christian? If someone is really a Christian, if someone is truly converted, can Christ misplace him? Paul says in Romans 8 that who will lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Shall, shall future events, present events, principalities, powers, can anything separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And Paul says, absolutely nothing. Now, your choices, are your choices in the future? Are your future choices in the future? Are your blunders and mistakes and follies, can they separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? No, they cannot. You did not earn your way into God's good graces by your good works, and you're not going to be able to get out by bad ones. Now, you might say, well, then you mean I can just send up a storm? No, we're liberated. What? We're liberated so we can walk in accordance with the law of the Spirit. So, our salvation is not a loner. Not, you don't have it for a time. And then third, this salvation of sinners was accomplished by a Savior who remained absolutely just. He is the one who justifies, but he is also just. Romans 3.26. Romans 3, this salvation of the unholy is actually a holy salvation. God is the Holy One of Israel. He saves us, the unholy, and he saves us, the unholy, while remaining holy. So how can God do that? How can he be just and the one who justifies? He could be just and send everybody to hell, but then nobody's saved. He could be the one who justifies and say, okay, no matter what, I'm just going to look the other way, everybody into heaven. He could be the one who justifies, but then he would no longer be just. How can he be just and the one who justifies? Well, it's through the cross. This is the, this is the glory. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. All of us were locked up in the penitentiary on death row. Now, here's God's escape plan. How, how can you get out of the penitentiary? You're on death row. How can you get out? Here's the secret. This is the way to tunnel out. You must die. That's the plan. If you die on death row, are you on death row anymore? 
No, you're free. Yes, you, you hasten to add, yes, I'm free, but I'm also dead. <laughs> I, I see a flaw in your escape plan. <laughs> here's the flaw. Now, here's the question. If you, if you were executed in the penitentiary and the coroner pronounces you dead and they load you up in the hearse and the hearse is driving out of the prison gates, do the guards chase after the hearse trying to shoot out the tires? Do the guards care? Do the guards care if a corpse escapes? No, they don't care. Now, if the corpse, three days later, managed to come back from the dead, do the guards care now? The guards would say, you know, I think it's sort of outside of our jurisdiction now. I don't think we have any control over that. And what Christ did was he, and he was born into the penitentiary, he was born into this world of sin and death, and he, was, he arranged to be executed there, and everyone who looks to him in faith, looks to him in faith, and is united with him in his cross, is united with him in his burial, is united with him in his resurrection, and is united with him in his ascension. And so consequently, Christ did not die so that you might live. Christ died so that you might die. He lives so that you might live. It's not that Christ died over here so that you over here could suddenly come to life. It doesn't work that way. Christ died so that you looking to him could die with him, die in him, Paul says, I have been, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, as many, as, as many of you as were baptized, were baptized into what? Were baptized into his death. So he died, you died. He was buried, you were buried. He rose, you rose. He ascended into heaven. And you ascended into heaven, and that's why we're seated with him in the heavenly places, which is what the book of Ephesians is all about. And that means that in Christ, we escape from that prison of sin and death. And we did it without any injustice. You know why? Because what, what, what did the sentence of justice require? What did the condemnation require? You're a sinner, you must die. But I did. I've died. And that's why the law can't touch me. If I'm in Christ, I died in Christ. I can't be in Christ without having died with him. And I can't die with him without being raised with him. And that's why I get to walk in newness of life. That's how it works. And that's how God can save me from sin and death and remain holy. The reason he remains holy is the sentence that, that was coming at me came at me. The thing that I, I needed to have happened to me happened to me. I, I'm a sinner, I must die. And I did. In Christ Jesus, I died. Compare this to the spurious salvation offered by the world. They promise a no condemnation, but terms and conditions may apply. First, everything they offer arises from inside the world. They have nothing else to offer. They have, everything is inside the world. They have no transcendental anchor. That means they can change their mind anytime because the world is constantly changing. God's immutable decree outside the world never changes. God's elective decree settled on you before the foundation of the world, and that cannot be changed. But the con no condemnation that the world offers, they could, they could change it in any given session of Congress. So, someone could say, oh, the sexual revolution was proclaimed, and you can do what you want, do what you feel, pursue your life, do, just be yourself. And so somebody did that for years and years, and all of a sudden, wham, me too, arrived. No, not that. 
and we're going to come after you, and we're going to destroy you. Why are we going to destroy you? Because you were obedient to our word over the previous decade. They just changed the rules. They just arbitrarily changed the rules. So everything they offer <coughs> is from inside the world. They have nothing else to offer. But without an infinite reference point, everything within the world is simply absurd. This includes all justification. It includes all condemnations. Without an infinite reference point, without transcendental grounding, every gospel is a balsa wood gospel. Every gospel they offer you is made out of styrofoam. It's not the eternal rock. It can't, they have nothing. Secondly, they have no efficacious sacrifice. The only blood they can provide is the blood of others, which they do abundantly. The Lord taught believers to say, my life for yours, but theirs is the way of your life for mine. Your life for my, you can see that in the abortion culture. Your life for mine. Your life for my convenience. Your life for my health. Your life for me. But that's not how Jesus taught us to live. And then last, those who devise humanistic ways of salvation are not holy themselves. And so all they can do is rearrange the furniture of unholiness. All they can do is move unholiness around. See, God can be holy, and he, and he can save the unholy, and he can do it while remaining holy. And the salvation is, <coughs> excuse me, the, sal the salvation itself is holy. But what the ungodly can do, and the only thing they can do, is they can just move unholiness around. All they can do is rearrange the furniture of sin. Water cannot rise above its own level. And this applies to their fetid swamps as much as to any other water. It has to be this way. There's the gospel of no condemnation that actually pronounces and secures no condemnation. And then there is the faux message of no condemnation. Do what you feel. We'll leave you alone for the present until we change our minds. I've often reminded people that it is either Christ or chaos. But we should expand that a bit. It is Christ and no condemnation on the one hand, or the chaos of bitter and rancid guilt on the other. That's what it's Christ and no condemnation, or man, man in his way, the chaos of bitter and rancid guilt, and the arbitrary shifting standards constantly changing, and no certainty, and the only reason, the only reason people go that way is it gives leeway to their lusts. They can, they can do what they it's the gambler's hope. I can just get away with this. If I can just get away with this for a time, maybe, maybe it'll all work out. Maybe it'll leave me, leave me alone. But what we need is a better security than that. We need salvation. We need justification. We need God to pronounce over us no condemnation. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. That's the message. That's the message that's going to resonate from the beginning of the world to the very end of the world. This is what God has given us to enable us to live out a different way of being human, a way that is pleasing to God, and a way that is just, and a way that doesn't crush us in our sins. This is, this is the glorious thing. God saves sinners. And one final um, word, especially to those of you who are growing up in the faith, you young people, 
you, you need to understand that growing up in church and growing up, up in the covenant and growing up in a church that preaches the word does not keep uh, the, the residue of the old Adam from floating to the surface of your heart. You've been going to church, you've been going to Christian school, you've been d- d- your whole life, and where did this gunk come from in my heart? How, why does this keep appearing? Why, w- uh, well, we're all of us by nature objects of wrath, just as the others. And this is why the, this message of no condemnation is a message that has to be preached to young and old. It has to be preached to everyone, from the least of them to the greatest. Everyone has to internalize this, that God has forgiven you, period. God has forgiven you, period. Have you looked to Christ? Are you in Christ? There's therefore no condemnation. But you say, but I remember when I thought this. I remember when I wanted to do that, but the only reason I didn't sin big time is because I was too scared. Is that forgiven? Yeah, that's forgiven. Is that tawdry sexual thought forgiven? Yeah, that's forgiven. Is that cattiness that you displayed toward your friend, is that forgiven? Yes, it's all forgiven. All of it. We need to remind ourselves of this week to week, which is why we confess our sins week to week at the beginning of the service. We need constant reminders. But you have to understand that God is not threatened by our sin. God is not threatened by it. He's dealt with it. He's dealt with it, and he's dealt with it fully and completely. And so this is why we can say, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Our Father, gracious God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for all you provide for us. I pray that this message would be something that we would internalize and that your spirit would apply it to every nook and cranny of our hearts. Father, I pray you'd help us. Help us to understand what we need to do. Help us to understand what you have given us in Christ Jesus. And we pray in the, in the name of the one who taught us to pray, saying, uh, So the charge is this. You, you might ask, So, you, are you saying that it's possible to live a life of moral uprightness in line with the Holy Spirit of God? And, and hold these truths, to live it on the basis of these truths. Yes, it, that is exactly what I'm saying, but I'm saying more than that. Not only is it possible to live a life of moral uprightness and forgiveness in the light of this truth, this is the only way that such a life can be lived. It's the only way that a sinner can stand upright in this grimy world, and that is by grace through faith. And so, with believing hearts, receive the benediction of your God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.